Below the Yellow Line studio. It's the Below the Yellow Line podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Below the Yellow Line podcast. I am very, very, very excited for our guest today. He is a driver and just a person that you should look up to. Um, just a great guy, uh, a man that that I certainly look up to, and someone who helped the sport uh, of auto racing and really NASCAR in such a big way, Mr. Bill Lester. Sir, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm excellent, Samuel. How about you? You doing good? I'm doing all right. You know, any day I get to get to conduct an interview, any day I get to live my dream, that's all thanks to you guys uh, listening and watching. And of course, the people that agree to these interviews, uh, that's a good day in my mind. So I have uh, a couple today, um, and it's just awesome for me to, to get to uh, get to talk to people like you who have uh, shaped um, a lot of my life. I mean, the sport's a huge part of my life, and everybody who, you know, makes it go round is, is you know, a part of that. Um, you've done so much, and I feel like it'd be really unfair to ask a broad question like I'm about to ask, but I'm going to do it anyway because I feel like I do this with everybody I talk to. How did your racing career and how did your interest for racing really get started? It started at a very young age. It started when I was single digit. Um, I had an obsession with cars and speed at a very young age. And, uh, you know, my parents didn't know what to do with it. I didn't grow up around racing. They understood stick and ball sports, but motorsports was something completely foreign to them. So they didn't know what to do with me. But I knew that I loved cars. I mean, they told me that I was as a little kid, didn't hardly go anywhere without a matchbox or a Hot Wheels. <laughs> and then when my father would bring home Road and Track or Car and Driver magazine, I raced to go and see the racing stuff that was at the back of the magazine, not the you know passenger car stuff or sports car stuff at the front, but the racing stuff. I was always looking at the race cars. So the th- fact of the matter is, though, he took me to a race when I was just shy of eight years old um, in Monterey at, at a sports car track called Laguna Seca. And that's what really set the hook when he brought me there and I saw those cars blowing by me at, you know, 160, 170 miles an hour. It was just intoxicating for me. You know, the sights, the sounds, the smell, the speed. I mean, just everything was, was just really just mesmerizing. And I knew that was something that, man, that would be cool to be able to be a part of. I just didn't know whether or not it would, you know, I would be able to attain it. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, I love the fact and, you know, family and, and close friends of mine will get this. It's kind of an inside joke, I guess, but when I was young, after I went to my first race, I got a little uh, commemorative car that they always give out with the program. And from that point on, mainly as a fidget, but from that point on, and I have one uh, right here, I'm going to hold it to the camera. It's an old Ernie Irvin car from the 90s, but I always have one in my pocket just to kind of mess with. And, you know, during races, if, you know, if it if I'm nervous during a race or nervous during a football game, baseball game, basketball game or whatever, um, you know, I'll, I'll have it in my hand and just rotating it over and over. It, it's just, it's something to keep my hands busy, I guess. But that's, uh, that's funny. It's a parallel. I probably won't go on to, to win sports car races like you did, but you know, I, I have something in common with the NASCAR driver that that's, that's pretty cool to me. Um, my next question for you, um, you know, you, again, like I said earlier, you did so much, but what were some of the challenges that not everybody really knows about that, that you faced while moving up through the ranks of, of sports car racing? You did some uh, some Rolex 24 races at Daytona um, and obviously uh, NASCAR. So what were some of the challenges that you faced that maybe not everybody knows about? 
Well, heck, you probably don't have enough time in this podcast for me to go through all of them. But I mean, one of the big things I mentioned earlier is that I was not born in the world of motorsports, right? I, you know, again, my parents, they understood stick and ball sports. My father um, was a very, very talented basketball player. But, you know, when they saw my interest in racing, they just didn't know what to do. So, um, you know, I didn't get that opportunity that most of all these race car drivers that I competed with then and now days out there that are competing they have a common platform, which is that they start out very young racing, you know, go-karts or quarter midgets or, you know, uh, whatever it is that they started out doing because they were exposed to it, right? Their families knew it. They, you know, it was just part of their lifestyle. And, and for me, you know, I grew up playing stick and ball sports and really didn't get to do anything with any substance behind the wheel until I started goofing off with my street car. As soon as I got my driver's license, it was like the Fast and the Furious before it was a movie, right? I was doing all sorts of things illegal that I can't condone, but, you know, I just had this, you know, need for speed and that was the only way I could exercise it because I didn't know how to get to a racetrack, you know, and, you know, it was interesting because I was really known for being very good in street racing, not, you know, street like the street light, but I grew up in Northern California in the Oakland Hills. And so my kind of racing was, you know, going around bends and curves and blind corners and stuff like that. Um, not from light to light. And, I became pretty well known at being good at it. And somebody said, look, before you kill yourself or somebody else, take it to a racetrack. And I was like, okay, well, that'd be great. But, you know, how do you get there? Well, it requires money, of course. Right. So mm -hmm. fortunately, my father, you know, exposed me to high technology. And so I went to Cal Berkeley, got an electrical engineering, computer science degree, got my butt kicked for four years. But with that piece of paper, I went out and immediately bought myself a race car and started amateur road racing in Northern California. And so when you talk about, you know, the challenges, you know, the first thing was getting enough money to go out there and buy a race car, you know, um, trying to maintain an eight to five and then living for the weekend where I could finally go out there and race, you know. And then when I found out I was good at it, it was so hard to get to the next level. When I mean good at it, my first year in amateur road racing, I was rookie of the year from Northern California. And then the next year I was Northern California road racing champion for my class. Right. So I thought. Immediately, I would go pro. Well, no, <laughs> it doesn't quite work out that way. And so, um, you know, the next challenge is how do I live a dual life, right? Because I was successful by everybody else's definition, but my own as a corporate research and development project manager. I was managing software development engineers and everybody thought I was successful because, you know, I had a six figure income. I was managing a couple dozen engineers, but I was flat miserable. So I didn't consider myself successful because I define success as happiness. Are you looking forward to, you know, each and every day? What's the last thing you think about before you go to bed? And what's the thing that gets you up and energized in the morning? For me, it was looking forward to racing, not going to, you know, the corporate eight to five and, and putting in those hours. So it was challenging to be able to go through those motions of maintaining what I had to do so I could do what I wanted to do. So it was really challenging. It was really challenging getting all the rejection letters that I got from corporate America when I was, you know, working. My, during my off hours, I was sending proposals and I was trying to get the support of corporate America, but I didn't come with a big name. People didn't know who I was. You know, amateur racing is a lot different than the pros that could afford to be out there weekend and week out. I couldn't afford to do that, you know. So, you know, like I said, how much time do you have? Because it, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> I'm sure it does. And, and you know, whether, you know, it, you talked about guys that start off so young. Last week, I interviewed a 15-year-old who is already racing at 
you know, the premier short tracks in this country. And that that's just amazing to me. And, and it didn't always used to be like that. You know, I've also talked to guys uh, like uh, Brad Smith from the Arca series who didn't start till he was, I think, 35 and now he's 65 and still racing. So everybody is a different story. And, and I love yours so much because, you know, you weren't always ingrained in racing and you came from, um, you know, not necessarily a motorsports background, like you mentioned. Um, but that it's so cool to me that you were still able um, to break through and, and have a pretty, uh, pretty successful career. Um, one other guy that I, uh, I know this from, from reading your, uh, your memoir, which everybody should when in reverse, I uh, go get it. It's a great book. Got it from my birthday last year and I, and I love it. But, uh, Willie T ribs had a, uh, had a big impact on your career and seemed like he was a big mentor for you. Can you just kind of take us through maybe an abridged version? Cause I know, you know, like, like your uh, it, it's a, it's a great story, but, um, how much of an effect did, did Willie have on you? Oh, a huge effect. I mean, I probably would have given up my pursuit, my passion. I mean, racing was my passion. It's what I wanted to do with my life. But I was so frustrated and so discouraged. And, you know, I got together with Willie kind of on a fluke. He saw me when I was going through SCCA road racing school at Sears Point back in 1984. And he walked up to me and he introduced himself to me, which he didn't have to do because Willie T. Ribs was where I wanted to be. I mean, he was racing SEC and Trans Am back when Trans Am was a huge series and all the factories were, go were going at each other and all that. Hugely successful. And so I knew exactly who he was. So I was blown away by the fact that he came up to me and he said, hey, I've been watching you. You know, you have what it takes to make it in this sport. Why don't you stay in touch with me? And man, I mean, I basically called him the next day because I knew that, you know, if I could learn at the feet of the master, I could learn, you know, what it took to be a professional race car driver, because that's what he was. I was like, a, you know, fledgling, floundering amateur, and he's racing for money. You know, I'm racing for checker flags and trophies. He's racing for paychecks. That's a whole different animal, right? And so, um, you know, I basically watched everything that he did when I was, you know, doing my eight to five in corporate America. During lunch hours, I would race over to Willie's house because I was working in the Silicon Valley in Cupertino in the South Bay. And he was living in San Jose, also in the South Bay, about a half an hour away from where I was working. So I would run over and spend time with him and learn about what it took to be a professional race car driver. All the grinding that you got to do if you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth to make sure that you can race. Right. Because it's all driven by money. And one of the things he taught me that I'll just, you know, never forget is that the easy part of being a professional race car driver when you have to work for it is the racing. I thought the hard part was the racing part, the competing part. That's the easy part. I found out that professional motorsports is politics first, business second, and sport third. And he taught me that. He said the politics of racing is being in the room. It's being around people that can open doors for you, that are influential and can make big dollar decisions. It's called a target-rich environment, or TRE. That's the politics of it. You have to be in that room. Then there's the business aspect of it, which is, okay, so you convince somebody that it's worth their time to listen to what you can do for them, right? How you can give them a return on investment for their product or service. That's the business end of it. You have to justify to them why they should support you versus all the other sports marketing or just marketing in general endeavors that they can do. Mm -hmm. Why support Bill Lester at six or seven figures when they can do anything else they can do, right? That's a business aspect, right? So after getting shot down a whole bunch of times, you know, I mean, it's easy to become discouraged, but that's the grind, right? And then at the end of the day, when you finally got somebody to believe in you and they're sponsoring you, 
you actually get to put your helmet on and do what it is that you love to do, which is the actual sport part of it. So what I learned from Willie was that the racing part was the easy part. That's awesome. And again, you know, a lot of people don't know that. That's kind of behind the scenes. Everybody thinks, oh, race car drivers, all they do is race. All they do is go in circles. But there's so much business, so much politics. And I can say even as a as a small podcaster trying to uh, get sponsors and everything, I've, uh, I've joked with friends and, and family that if uh, sponsor proposals are this hard, then the real life proposal is going to be even harder and I'm just going to be single forever because <laughs> it's so difficult to get a company, no matter how large or small, small businesses, even people that you know, to you know give you a little bit of money. But hey, I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? So, I mean, exactly. more people do this than, than drive a race car for a living. But uh, regardless, um, you know, business is difficult. Um and I, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's also probably a challenge. Um, one of those challenges that you faced as well. Well, um, you know, and to dovetail onto that in terms of other challenges, when I told you I grew up in Northern California, I looked at NASCAR and never in a million years thought I would race in NASCAR. I thought my <laughs> career would take me to the open wheel Indy 500 or something like that, or sports car road racing, 24 hours of Daytona, 24 hours of Le Mans, you know, whatever the case is. But Never in a million years thought I would race in NASCAR because as a very young kid, when I would watch NASCAR and ABC's Wide World of Sports, because that was the only broadcaster that was televising, that shows you how yeah. old I am. Um, I saw these guys running around in circles with Confederate flags, you know, behind the stands and talking with Southern drawls. And I couldn't understand half of what they were saying. And I couldn't understand why they're just running around in circles. When I looked at racing, I thought racing was an extension of what you do on the street, right? Which is turn right, mm -hmm. turn left. Upshift, downshift, accelerate, brake, not drop it into fourth gear and turn left. So I just I couldn't understand why anybody would want to do that form of racing, turning left, trying to stay off a concrete wall. I, I just couldn't fathom it. And lo and behold, you know, I wind up coming to the southeast with my wife's blessing, you know, leaving a again, huge, you know, professional career to do something where I wasn't guaranteed an opportunity to, to, to make it. I didn't know if I was going to do it. She believed in me as much as I believed in myself told me that, you know, I'll support you. We can do this for about three years. We, we devised a game plan. I didn't do it on a wing and a prayer, but we basically had three years or I had three years to make my dream a reality or go back to, you know, the fact that I was going to be working in the high tech sector for the rest of my career. So we committed wholeheartedly. We moved from California to um, Atlanta, which is where I am now. And, um, you know, I kept on beating on doors and everything. And finally, the opportunity to race for Dodge, you know, came together. And that's where at 40 years of age, I became a rookie in the truck series. And, uh, you know, that is probably never going to happen again. Right. You don't just wind up <laughs> leaving your regular career at 37 to become a professional racer at, you know, NASCAR level at 40. And then later on, as you know, in 2006, I was a cup rookie at 45. Mm -hmm you know, at Atlanta Motor Speedway. So I know how Jimmy Johnson felt <laughs> when he left NASCAR to become a rookie at 45 in IndyCar. It ain't easy. Mm -hmm. It is not. And, you know, it's so funny to me, Matt Crafton, I think, is the oldest truck driver right now, and he's 47, 48, and then you have 16-year-olds making starts in the truck series. And you go back and you look at even, you know, when you were racing in trucks, and at the start of the truck series, I think the first truck race at Phoenix, like, 85% of the field was either cup regulars or Bush series regulars. And it's just such a contrast to today, but that's, that's just, it's how, uh, how the sports changed. And speaking of how the sports changed, Bill, um, I, I mentioned earlier in the intro that, you know, you're a guy that, that we all should look up to not as a, just a driver, but 
as a person. And, and a big part of that to me, at least, um, and I got a lot of this from reading your book and, and hearing other speeches, but was your push for diversity in NASCAR. Um, I believe at one point, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were even offered uh, the role of, of heading up the Drive for Diversity program, which is still going strong today. Um, but just kind of talk about how you think, and, and I, you know, even if you downplay a little bit, I personally think you did a, a tremendous amount for it. Um, you know, you have guys, Bubba Wallace, Rajak Ruth now winning races, breaking through and, and just making the sport a better place for, for everybody. Um, but what do you think you did to help the sport with diversity, which is an area where traditionally or stereotypically anyway, everybody's always said it struggled. And what strides do you think NASCAR has made uh, recently uh, in that sector? Well, I think just the fact that I was out there moved the needle, right? Because I can say there were a lot of what I consider closet NASCAR fans, you know, a black and brown <laughs> persuasion that wanted to be out there, but just didn't have anybody to pull for. You know, it's kind of like um, we pull for people that look like us, that sound like us, that we can identify with, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what was lacking in NASCAR, you know, I mean, there was just a, a sea of white guys out there racing and, you know, for most of the African-American community and, and, you know, what have you, it just wasn't a really inviting environment when you saw Confederate flags. You didn't see anybody who you could really gravitate and, and, and pull for, you know, per se, that might have looked like you. And so for my being out there, primarily in the truck series, but even when I made my cup debut, I mean, I can't tell you how many people reached out to me and told me how proud they were of me and how big a deal it was for me to be out there. And um, it really warmed my heart because I didn't know I was making that much of an impression. I, I really didn't. I didn't go out there for that reason. I wanted to go out there because, or I went out there because I wanted to compete at the top level of sports in this country. And I saw that it was no longer IndyCar racing. It was never really sports car racing, but it was NASCAR racing, once IndyCar racing became divided, right? The IndyCar series mm -hmm. kind of had issues with its management, its organizations. They changed their labeling, you know, it became IndyCar, IRL, you know, Indy Racing League and whatever. I mean, just, I can't remember all the iterations of sanctioning bodies, but while they floundered and, and bickered and, and whatever with each other, NASCAR continued to be there week after week. People knew when their favorite drivers were going to be racing and it was consistent. And so, you know, I saw what John Andretti did back in 1990 when he left a full-fledged, fully you know, sponsored and supported IndyCar program to come to race in NASCAR. We all thought he was crazy, but he did something that was on the cusp. He came over at the point where NASCAR was really blowing up in the 90s, right? In the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And once that happened, everybody wanted to get into NASCAR. And so I did it because, like I said, I wanted to become a professional race car driver because I wanted to be on the biggest platform, biggest stage, racing against the best of the best. And the whole diversity thing and inclusion thing came along, you know, kind of mm -hmm. um, <laughs> on its own, you know, because that was not what I was staking my flag, you know, in the sand about. You know, that was not what I was doing it for. But I was really, really um, overwhelmed by the amount of support that I got you know, from the black and brown community that said, you know, now that you're out there, I feel good about coming out to the racetrack. You know, I can see you out there and I can support you. And that really wound up being important to me because believe me, Samuel, I thought I was on an island when I was out there because <laughs> I was not embraced in the stands and the fans, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, going to Martinsville was very difficult. Going to Talladega was extremely difficult. They didn't want to see me out there. But the thing that I can say definitively that in the garage area, 
everybody respected me. It wasn't as if I was a diversity driver out there having no business being out there. They knew I could drive. They saw my talent. They saw my skills. I could do you know, what I needed to do. And I carried myself well. And I think all of them appreciated that. I think they do. And, you know, I, I certainly thank you for what you've done. And I'm not sure our sport would would have made some of the advancements it, it made without you and and a lot of uh, a lot of other um, contributors as well. So, sir, I think that was the uh, the last question uh, that I had for you. Thank you so much for coming on. And and again, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, this is not sponsored. He's not paying me, I promise. But seriously, <laughs> if you haven't read it yet, go read his book, Winning in Reverse. Um, a great book. It dives even deeper than we did today into his his early life, his the start to his racing career, some of the challenges that he faced coming up through the ranks, and and that uh, that infamous 2006 Atlanta qualifying session, which I was actually just watching this afternoon. Um, and it's so funny to me how uh, Daryl Waltrip, Larry McReynolds, Mike Joy, they're kind of like, I don't know if that was a great lap. And then you know, I think you ran a 29.5, which even for then when the cars had so much more horsepower than they did now was a blazing fast lap at Atlanta, especially early, early in a qualifying session with not much rubber laid down. So um, go read that book um, and, and check out Bill and all his socials. He, he still does a great deal um, of good stuff, speaking at commencements um, and, of course, coming on our show, the best NASCAR podcast out there, in my completely unbiased <laughs> opinion. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you so much for all you've done um, for the sport. Uh, both driving and, and off the track. And uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, it's been my pleasure joining you. I appreciate it myself. You take care. Yeah. You too.